Jeff, what's going on, man? I appreciate you doing this. Well, I appreciate getting the chance to talk with you. Do you know, because of you, I almost had to break down and join Facebook. You have been one of my holy grail uh, authors I want to have on my show, and I never knew how to get in touch with you. So finally, I kept telling my wife, I want these five guys. I had four of them, and you were the fifth one, but she found you on Facebook. I almost had to join that network just because of you, man. Well, you know, I'm glad you didn't have to make that kind of sacrifice. <laughs> Hey, we both agreed to do this a little later on in the day because yesterday was a Super Bowl. Where does Jeff watch the Super Bowl? Well, I've got this little room at my house that my wife says, if I want anything cleaned, I got to do it because nobody else but me and the dog go in there. <laughs> and that's where I watch the Super Bowl. When I'm done with the day's writing, I got to find some sport involving a ball and I watch it in there. It's my place. Now you're down in the Lone Star State. Don't tell me you're a, uh, a Cowboy and uh, Astros fan, are you? Well, I am a Cowboys fan. Okay. Astros, hell no. <laughs> Who's your baseball team? San Francisco Giants. I'm so old that when I was a kid, my hero was Willie Mays. And you know, the team you love as a kid mm -hmm. is the team you love all your life. The loyalty. I can never respect someone who wears two different hats, a Mets and Yankee hat or a Dodgers Giants hat. You just can't respect those people. Well, they can't make up their minds. <laughs> and one last thing before we get to your books. I have to ask you about the Holden Cole. What were your thoughts watching it? Probably you didn't care who won. Obviously, we both don't like the Eagles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> how about that call at the end? You know, I try to feel sorry for the officials. There was a grab of the jersey. Mm -hmm. There really was. The guy himself, the Eagle defensive back, he said, yeah, it was. He hoped the official wasn't going to call it. What are you going to say to the official? He yeah. doesn't call it, and the Kansas City Chief fans are burning down his house <laughs> that night, right? Have you ever attended a Super Bowl? You're a big-time famous New York Times best-selling author. Have you ever visit, uh, been to a Super Bowl? I have never been to a Super Bowl. Baseball stuff, yeah, but... Uh, the time that the Super Bowl was right next door in Jerry World, yeah. I was away on book tour. Or I would have gone just to be able to say I saw one. One selfish book tour question. How have you never came to New York to do a book tour, book signing lately? I haven't done one lately. That's true. The last one I did was about six years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think the publisher tends to believe that because I'm from Texas, People in New York aren't going to read the book. I try to convince them differently. Maybe you can change their minds. First time you ever saw someone reading your book was where? In a hospital, oddly enough. <laughs> My father-in-law was sick. We were going into the hospital. A little local publisher published one of my books. And there was this guy in the waiting room, and he was reading it. And I wanted to go up and hug him, but I felt particularly in Texas, this could be taken the wrong way and people have guns. So I cherish the memory, but he had no idea. So you you have you ever approached anyone who's reading your book and said, hey, uh, that's me? A couple times. And what's and their one reaction? Guy said, one guy said, your book's crap. Give me my money back. No. <laughs> that taught me never to do it again. Behind me on my bookshelf sits four of your books, uh, Manson, The Road to Jonestown, Go Down Together, obviously mm -hmm. Waco, David Koresh, The Branch Davidians, and a Le Legacy of Rage. And this morning, I got an email from the Brooklyn Library that the autobiography of Santa Claus just came in. So I just grabbed that one, too. So this is an honor and a half. So again, thank you for coming on, man. It's a pleasure. Uh, congratulations on the book and the success of the book, but most importantly, completing the book. I have so many authors on, and I know it's so stressful and time-consuming, physically and emotional. What do you do? Do you have a ritual or something you do when you hit send for the last time, and you know that's your final draft? Do you do anything to celebrate that? The first couple books I did, because the idea that you write a book and you finish it is like the first time you run a marathon. But the way the publishing world works with most books, by the time you hit send and it goes in, they're already saying, what are you going to do next? Yeah. There's a little Mexican place in Fort Worth called Benito's. 
Okay. Any of you guys ever get to Fort Worth, Texas, you want Mexican food, go to Benito's. It's a hole in the wall, perfect food. My wife and I will go there. I'll eat something. And then it's like, okay, you got to go on to the next one now because that's the job. Does it get frustrating? You wrote 25 books. You're a New York Times bestselling author, but people mostly talk about the three books, the ones I just mentioned, uh, Manson, Jonestown, and now Waco. Does that get a little frustrated that you're kind of stereotyped as the cult author? I don't think of myself as that, but the I write about so many different kinds of things. I think some people get attracted to one style of my writing and then some people maybe like the other one i got people who only read the santa claus novels and they think that's all i write other people like the cowboy history mm -hmm. uh i wrote a book about ford and edison that's one of my favorites and i think the only guys who ever bought it are the ones who have old model t's in their garage <laughs> but the cult thing let's face it that's something that gets the public attention. It always does. Generally, they think it's like sex, drugs, rock and roll, and Jesus. <laughs> and there's always going to be people who want to read about it, want to learn about it. We're fascinated by it. So these books, I'm always just trying to figure it out. Where do these people come from? And what, what do they do? What do they have in common that get people to believe things that just seem outrageous to everybody else? And it's an ongoing thing. I'm going to keep writing about this until I get it figured out. I have a, a bunch of true crime authors, all different authors that come on, and they said they get approached a lot. They get emails, do a book on this, do a book on that. Do a lot of people approach you and give you their suggestion on what they should do next? Oh, oh always, always. <laughs> and uh, a lot of times it's like a little local murder 40 years ago that never got solved. But the point, again, is people are fascinated by the whole mystery of it. It's not just like your basic murder mystery where somebody goes and gets shot in a drug deal. There's the whole idea of how do we choose what to believe in? Why do we believe in something? What does it take us to stop believing? And all of us wonder about that. So it's kind of this ongoing frustration, I think. People want some simple answer. It's exactly this, and it never is exactly one thing. I'm going to throw my name in the hat and be one of those guys. So if you're going to do another cult book, Heaven's Gate. Yeah. For some reason, I was always fascinated by that as a little kid. I remember uh, watching CNN when the first when it broke news. So if you're going to do that right. next, you can do it and thank me in the beginning. Is that okay? i tell you what. I'll, I'll even bring you along on one of the research trips. That would be an absolute dream of mine. Thank you. Jeff, we're approaching 30 years since the Waco siege. Uh, where were you when it initially happened, and what were your original thoughts as it happened? I was actually a working journalist at the time. I worked for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. I did a lot of investigative stuff. I did not cover Waco because at the time, I was living and working with a group of migrant workers down in the valley, so I could write a story from that perspective. So, like everybody else, I followed it, and I thought, what the hell is going on here? And when the big, terrible thing happened, April 19th, the sort of flaming finish, again, I'm like everybody else, how did it have to come to that? And afterward, when you start seeing the results, the way it lingered, two years later, Timothy McVeigh broke, blows up the federal building in Oklahoma City. He says, retaliation for Mount Carmel. We got to give the government what they're giving us. In my book about Waco, I got a picture of Timothy McVeigh right there in Waco, sitting on the hood of his truck outside Mount Carmel during the siege, selling anti-government bumper stickers. This That's the thing with this story. And I didn't truly realize it till I started researching. Every, a lot of the things that are tearing us up today, worrying all of us. You know, the violence, the culture clashes, the way there's people that don't want to listen to reason anymore, they just want to pick up a gun and start shooting. So much of that is tied back to 30 years ago. That's ground zero. When a lot of people who love to believe in conspiracies and evil government decided this is where I can really use what happened to push my agenda. 
one of the, the old sheriff in McClendon County, Jack Harwell, he's the one that's out there outside Mount Carmel with ATF and FBI. McVeigh blows up the federal building, Oklahoma City, two years later. Somebody goes back and said to Jack Harwell, what do you think about any human being that would say, this is my reason for wanting to take up arms and kill other people? And Harwell said, I don't think this is the reason for anybody to do something crazy like that. This is the excuse to do what they wanted to do all along. That's still true today. You look at the leaders of Oath Keepers, Proud Boys. You look at Alex Jones. All of them got their start because they were protesting, bitching, wanting to get revenge for Waco. So we want to know what's going on today. We got to figure out what happened then. That's what the book's about. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say. You did such a masterful job uh, not describing the graphic attacks because that wasn't until 60% into the book. Uh, you did a whole extensive lineage of the Davidians. Is it difficult? You're going in there. I'm writing a book on Waco. And then you see there's a whole nother book about the Rodin family and this. There was so many other parts. Was it difficult as you put it all together? Like, wow, this is a lot more than I thought originally. If you start a book like this and you don't find things that surprise you, if you don't find things that help you figure out, okay, this led to this, led to this, led to this, then you're a lazy asshole <laughs> and you shouldn't be out there in the first place. A lot of so-called narrative nonfiction is just people repeating what they already decided was true and what they thought they already knew anyway. Anytime I write a book, I want to write about a subject where I think there's a lot more to learn. In a way, I always say my ignorance is my best trait as a writer. I don't think I know everything. So you're going to find new things. I had no idea the Branch Davidians go all the way back to Los Angeles in the 1920s, offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I had no idea there was this earlier Koresh in Florida, Cyrus Teed, who said the exact same things David Koresh is going to say 80 years later, same prophecies, or how Koresh got that with one of the first Teed's books, a rare one, in the Waco-McLennan County Public Library. That's the excitement, that's the thrill of doing this. If I get excited, if I start saying, hey, wait a minute, I didn't know that, that's how you let readers get excited and pulled into it. We're all learning about it together. You're not getting a lecture. You're part of an adventure. I loved reading that because Waco, we always think one thing. It was uh, the, you know, the militia with the guns. And as I'm reading it, I was so happy because at first, you know, I'm, I'm grabbing the book. and I'm like, okay, nothing about the siege. I'm like, oh, he's going to go into the history of the Davidians. I'm not really into that. And then the Rodin family, I'm like, that's a whole book on them itself you can do. Yep. Uh, and both rodents, Ben and Lois, would think that I wasted the other <laughs> five, six of the book because it all should have been about them. But then Vernon Wayne Howe, David Koresh, would say, I just should have started with his birth because that was where everything important got going. He, uh, he impressed me, uh, Vernon David Koresh. How did a bad student, uh, a really shy kid born to a 14, uh, I think his mom was 14 years old, captivate an entire group of believers? And Jeff, this is why I tell people like, uh, after talking about your book, they weren't just very ignorant people. They were, I think, police officers, Harvard graduates, lawyers. Like, right. How did this dude who was a shy, bad student captivate this entire, a lot of them were intelligent people? Well, see, you're bringing up. Part of the misrepresentation about members of so-called cults, we just assume they're all dumb people, mm -hmm. stupid sheep, who are just doing whatever they're told to do without even thinking about it. And a lot of the times, including the Branch Davidians, you had smart people. They just happened to be people who took every word of the Bible literally. They all believed that God sent prophets and they wanted to find one. And here comes Vernon Wayne Howe, later to call himself David Koresh. And Koresh always thought from the time he's a little kid, God is with me. God's communicating with me. You know, a lot of people think that in their lives. He's not the only one. But here's this kid, comes out of nowhere, Houston slums. 
He can barely read. He stutters. He stammers. Even when he gets to Mount Carmel when he's 21 years old, the other people there feel sorry for him. I talked to people who were there. They said, he can't talk. The only reason they let him stay was he could fix cars. You know, dumb kid, but let, he'll be useful. Then all of a sudden, he takes a trip to Israel. He comes back. He's not stuttering anymore. He's not stammering. Now he's talking. He's memorized huge passages of the Bible. You can't throw a line of scripture at him that he can't recite the next line that comes after it. And he talks about angels lifting him to heaven and giving him all these messages. And he's so persuasive. There are tapes of him talking. I guess I listened to about 100 hours of him on tape. And the damnedest thing is, 30 years later, knowing everything that happened, and yet once he gets going and he starts saying, now in the Bible, it's saying this, and we always thought it meant this, but could it mean this? And you start thinking, you know, maybe so. And you multiply that, because like any demagogue, mm -hmm. he's found an audience that wants to hear what he's saying, and he's keeping them away from any other outside voices. That's what demagogues do. Mm -hmm. They either try to isolate them, like at Mount Carmel. They say, don't listen to your family. Don't read the papers. Don't listen to Mike, because he might tell you something on his podcast that, that isn't true. And they're there three, four years, and it all soaks in. And that's what happened. The guy did have a gift. He had a gift for memorizing the Bible and interpreting it in new fascinating ways to people who took every word of the Bible literally. That was what he could do. That's what he did. Was that his biggest stronghold, how he just knew every line of the Bible, how he just seemed more intelligent than these Harvard lawyers, these police officers? Was that what it was, that he knew everything about the Bible that he kind of convinced them? Because they yes. said they, they never realized the guy who just interpreted it like they They're like, wow, this guy's different. Listen, they trusted him so much because of the way he was explaining the Bible to these people who believed that everything they did every day of their lives had to come out of that Bible. He's talking them into the men into giving up their wives so they could be his wives. The men couldn't engage in sex anymore. Even the things they ate. One woman, a survivor of Mount Carmel, told me she's got four kids there, little boys. And one of them, about six years old, goes out onto the ugly little hill Mount Carmel's built on, starts playing with a grasshopper and kills the grasshopper. That's what happens when toddlers and grasshoppers mix. Brings the dead grasshopper in to show mommy. She made him eat it. And I said, why? Well, David explained that in the book of Leviticus, the Bible says you may not kill any living thing unless you mean to eat it. If she hadn't made her son eat the grasshopper, his soul was in danger. This is how literally they took what he said. And we can mock it, but if we'd been up there for three or four years with no other voice coming at us, and we truly believed God sends prophets, and this guy is a prophet, yeah, you're going to do what he says. You just glossed over the part with the wives. It seemed that he had many contradictions. You couldn't have air conditioning in there. He had it. You couldn't smoke. He smoked. You mentioned the eating. He would have meat. Um, once he started taking the different wives, uh, grooming, he was grooming young girls to be. That one girl, Kiri, I believe she was 10. He was becoming a sexual predator, becoming a monster after getting all this Absolutely. power. Do you think that was his – I know he had many downfalls because – I think they kind of look past the air conditioner or the heat or the meat, the smoking, the playing the music. But once it started getting to the kids and people kind of saw between that, you think that's what eventually started becoming his downfall? If he had done that first, mm -hmm. if that had been the first thing he said, I get to do this extra thing. No, that that left or they'd have thrown him out. But again, I've written about Charlie Manson. I've written about Jim Jones. I've written about David Koresh. They're very different in most ways, but they got a couple things in common. Once someone starts believing, even a little bit, that maybe he is special, maybe God does talk through me, 
then they will actually gradually start thinking any impulse they got, anything they want to do, it must be because that's what God wants. That's how they give themselves the excuse to do stuff that any one of us would think, give me a gun, I'm going to shoot this guy. Mm -hmm. Faresh basically kept adding things, little privileges. And in the Bible, it says in Revelation, you have to respect the privileges of the lamb. He's the one taking on all the burden, and he's supposed to be a sinful Messiah. It says that in the Bible, right? So it must be true. So Paresh, when he's telling, he's making sexual advances to a 10-year-old girl, and by God, somebody does that, I say, bring out the cleaver, Let's just make sure this never happens again. But to his followers, two things. First of all, the little girls are being honored. Carrie Jewell's mother, who was a teacher, for God's sake, a public school teacher, is thrilled he wants her daughter. Oh. And the second thing is, if you disagree, if you think, oh, this is awful, well, the Bible says the Lamb is a sinful Messiah. This is simply the word of the Bible being proven truth. That's what these guys can do. They can say blacks, white, ups, down, because this is what the Bible means. And there are going to be those who say, all right, I didn't know that. Speaking of didn't know that, it's a perfect segue. Child services gets involved. Uh, there's nothing they can do. They were talking to the you know all the kids, robotic answers. It, it seems like they already knew the questions that were going to be answered. Uh, eventually, the ATF takes over because of the guns. When you hear Waco... Jeff, you think of David Koresh, guns, uh, right wing, all this stuff, crazy stuff. I was stunned to learn that initially they got involved in guns just to raise money for their cause. Did you know that? Because that really surprised me. Hey, it surprised me too. You, we know they have the guns, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know why they have the guns. This is the reason you write narrative nonfiction. Everybody knows the what happened, right? There's this first raid, there's the big siege, there's a terrible fire. What is not what you really need to know? You need to know why things happen and how they happen. Only then can you really understand it all. So, yeah, I'm, why'd they get the guns? Well, it costs a lot of money to have 140 people on top of a hill, even if you don't have air conditioning and you're feeding them popcorn and bananas. You still got to pay for stuff. And so they had businesses, the Branch Davidians. They had a garage. Then they sewed hunting gear. The women sewed it. They sold it at gun shows. Then they realized, hey, wait a minute. You know, there's people who want to buy automatic guns. They're worried some Democrat's going to get elected president. This is 92. Bill Clinton is looming towards the White House. He'll probably outlaw automatic gun sales. We'll convert the guns. It's not that hard. Remember, they're mechanical. All you got to do is take a semi-automatic gun, get a part called a lower receiver, and put it in there, and you got an automatic weapon. So they can sell these at high markup prices at gun shows, which they do. At the same time, they can put together an arsenal, a big one, because they believe, like in Revelation, they are going to have to battle Babylon. David Koresh said the agents of Babylon are the agents of the federal government of the United States. They got to fight them in a big fight. They have to kill some of them, and some of them have to be killed in their turn. That's what Revelation says they believe. So now they got these guns. The feds are bound to hear about it. I mean, we're not talking five. <laughs> We're talking hundreds, right? So NAT ATF is absolutely enforcing the law. They're going to go in there, and what they're going in there to do is not kill people, but get those guns, arrest who's ever in charge, Koresh, and that's going to be it. But ATF and FBI screw up beyond belief. It's not a plot. Mm -hmm. It's not some underground thing. They just think it doesn't matter what these people believe. The law matters, not what some cult idiots think might be happening. And they didn't realize they're going in to raid a place where armed people, fanatics you might call them, 
are waiting for a gun battle and think it is a great honor God's given them to fight to the death. They What they were doing was what the Branch Davidians had prayed for. Before we talk about the actual siege, I do this for a living. The scariest thing we do is when we kick a door in and you have to do a search warrant and you have to get a layout of the land. And before we do one, Jeff, we have to find out who's in what room, how many rooms are in there, all that right. stuff. I'm going to ask the most amateurish question ever. Why didn't they just wait for him to – he left the compound. He had relationships with the sheriff, um, right. even child services. You, you kind of uh, – you, you've touched on it in the book. Why didn't they just wait? What Did they want to put the show on? Because they're rolling up there, Jeff, 100 deep in cattle cars. They're not going to get a knock on the door. Hi, is uh, David here? David, come here. You're going to get – it's like they went in for a war. It's like, hey, David, can, can you come on out here? We want to make an arrest. With cattle cars, it just seemed like they not initiated it, but it seemed like they were going there for a reason. ATF is supposed to enforce the gun laws. That's what they do. And before and after Waco, they're good at it. However, six months before Waco, there's another thing known as Ruby Ridge. When ATF and FBI get involved in a gunfight with a separatist guy and his family, there's some shooting. A U.S. Marshal dies. One of the guy's teenage sons is killed. His wife is killed. It's just terrible. It looks awful. And again, it's simply bad planning, bad operation on the part of the FBI and ATF. But ATF in particular has got a god-awful reputation anyway. Anytime you see an NRA ad to this day, it's also about ATFs coming to take your guns away which they aren't. Mm -hmm. They're only coming for illegal guns. You got legal stuff. Hell, all the ATF guys are hunters. They got their own supply of guns. But ATF is scared. Ronald Reagan had already been talking about, let's fold ATF into the FBI or some other government agency. They're going to get their funds cut. They're going to lose their autonomy, maybe. And March 10th, 1993, there's going to be a budget hearing for ATF. What ATF is want, they want to do some wonderful arrest where they show how powerful they are, yet restrained. There's films. They were taken the whole morning that this thing falls apart. You know, you hear about the helicopters approaching Mount Carmel. Mm -hmm. The helicopters had no mounted guns yeah. to blast into Mount Carmel. But they had this poor guy hanging from a banana sling with a movie camera to try to get the right thing on film. They could have arrested David Koresh all by his lonesome mm -hmm. any number of times away from the compound. But this is how inept... ATF was in some of its planning. They had an undercover house across the street from Mount Carmel. They got eight agents at this undercover house, right? <laughs> Four working a 12-hour shift, the other 12 take over. So they'll constantly be watching Koresh, his every move. They got cameras to record everything. They can't figure out how to operate the cameras it's dark, and they they report, hey, we can't see a lot of stuff. And the only picture they have of David Koresh is from his driver's license 10 years earlier. <laughs> they didn't know what David Koresh looked like. And they report back because they don't want to look bad, right? Well, he never comes out. Like, hell, he never comes out. He'd take his car out to get gas, for God's sake. But see, again... It's not a plot. It's ineptitude. Huge difference there. They could have arrested Koresh. They didn't do it. Instead, they're going to do this. We're going to put 76 agents in cattle cars. We're going to go in there, dynamic entry. The guns are locked away in a room where nobody can get them, which was wrong. Their informants hadn't been inside Mount Carmel for over a year. The Branch Davidian adults had the guns and extra magazines in their room. ATF, we're not going to go in there if we know they're cop they know we're coming. They knew they were coming. There was a slip by a TV cameraman telling one of the Branch Davidians an hour before ATF was supposed to show up. ATF goes up a hill with no cover. 
to this huge compound, right? Where there's about a hundred people with fully automatic long guns waiting to blow their asses off, which is essentially what happened. It's not the fault of the agents in those cattle cars. They'd been promised there was going to be a surprise. They'd been promised these people would not have guns. They were lied to. You gave the math. I think it was um, ATF shot 1,500 times and the Branch Davidians shot 15,000 times. That's just mind-blowing numbers that you can't – and they went in there with you know uh, guns that weren't that strong. They made a plethora of horrendous decisions. Do you think one of the biggest uh, mistakes they made in their ineptitude was they underestimated that the Branch Davidians were – eager to die, like maybe not knowing enough about their religion. Because listen, you can be, always be the bad guy, good versus evil. This this was about their beliefs, and people don't mess with that. People are willing to die for what they believe. Do you think that's a big underestimation by them? That was the big mistake. If that had not happened, if ATF and the FBI had understood what the Branch Davidians believed, which they could have found out. Koresh never made any secret in and around Waco what he believed. But they didn't think that mattered. If you're in a cult, you're stupid. Yeah. That's the simplest way to put it. These people are idiots. We can just roll in there and look what happened. But again, I got to emphasize two things. This was not some government conspiracy to deliberately murder innocent, law-abiding, gun-owning Christian citizens. That was not true. And second... Nobody in the ATF or the FBI wanted anybody to die. They were desperate for a successful mission where nobody died. The only group of the three, ATF, FBI, Branch Davidians, that had death on the agenda as part of what had to happen, that was the Branch Davidians. Nobody else. I have so many authors on, so many athletes on, and I always ask the athletes, when did you know you were different? When, you know, when were you special? Was there a moment in high school that you knew? Or I asked an author, when did you know this book was going to hit? When all the agents from the sides, ATF, FBI, start to talk to you, they're willing to really open up. Obviously, you would have wrote an awesome book anyway. With them, do you think the book, without them, would the book have reached a standard you wanted it to? Because it seems like they were very vital in the information they gave you. Did they help out a ton to you? Yes, they did, but so did the surviving Branch Davidians. Mm -hmm. One of the things that writers like me need to remember, people do want to explain. They don't want to be interrogated. I mean, any of us, we're going to clam up if somebody says, you haven't told the truth all these years. I'm right here. This is it. You tell me right now. You know, people go, go to hell. I'm not talking to you. But if you say, you you know this, I can tell you know this, because you do it so well yourself. If you just say to somebody, you know, I'm trying to understand this. Can you help me understand? Can you explain so that other people can understand? Then people talk to you. It has always been true in your line of work, in my line of work. People want to give their side of things, particularly people who were ordered by their agencies 30 years ago never to talk about it and who hadn't and who finally said, you know what, you know, you're going to, and I always would give people copies of my earlier books. You want to see what kind of a writer I am? Mm -hmm. You know, so now they've all read the book. And everybody always th thinks I've been too sympathetic to the other side. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like ATF go, how can you talk to those Branch Davidians? Branch Davidians, how can you talk to the ATF? You can't get everybody in the same room, but you can at least get the perspectives honestly. And people will even be open about their mistakes. They just want to be given the chance to explain. And I say, you do that so well, that, that's why you got a popular show. You know, that's what I try to do. Hopefully, that's why people read my books. Like I said, you waited 60% of the book to get, you know, really into the meat and potatoes, the raid. That's what everyone thinks they mm -hmm. want to hear about. Um, was it difficult for you to, because you spoke about religion, was it difficult for you to judge, uh, to juggle it? Like, hey, I don't want to talk too much religion and get the, you know, let's be honest, the gun guys. I don't want to get them out of it. You know, a lot of law enforcement when you read it, they don't care about this. Is it hard for you to juggle all that with a book like this because there's so much in it? Oh, very much so. Uh, when you see one of my books hit print, you're probably seeing a third of what I wrote. 
to begin with. What I try to do is I try to write about every aspect of the story. Once I've done that, I go back in. How can I tell the important things that people need to know without putting them to sleep? There was a great writer of narrative nonfiction named Stephen Ambrose some years ago. He did books like Band of Brothers that were just sensations. And Ambrose said he had a little trick to decide what he put in his books. He said he had the wife tests. He, when he was writing that day, he'd think, what if I was having breakfast with my wife who isn't paying attention to any of this stuff? And she said, what are you writing about today? What are the things he would tell her? Just using the facts, no exaggeration. But what would he tell her that would make her lean over and want to hear a little more? Wow. And I thought that's the smartest thing I've ever heard any writer say. And that's what I do with my wife or Nora. <laughs> breakfast. If she doesn't ask me, what are you writing about today? I'll say, don't you want to know what I'm writing about? But then what is going to make her lean forward and want to know a little more? When am I writing about the background of the Branch Davidians? Is she going to start to fall asleep mm -hmm. listening? When are her eyes going to glaze over? That's where I have to cut it off. So yeah, that's what I try to do. Anything I put in the book, I'm only going to put there if I think it's important for the reader to know it. And it's my job as a writer to be truthful and yet try to do it in as entertaining a way as I possibly can, because nobody wants to spend a week reading a lecture. Nobody wants to spend a week reading something like their old high school history book. So I try to make it entertaining, but I only will use facts, not supposition. I'm going to keep saying I have so many true crime authors on and you guys invest years, years yep. into these books. Um, mentally, it's all consuming. This is all you when you know when you have on X, you're, you had on, you did the Manson book. You were engrossed in Manson's life. Something like this where children died in the most horrific way. Does it affect you? Because you're as me as a reader, I read I'm like, oh, that's that's tough. Uh, what I do with my real job, I'm like, oh, that's tough to really get into it. And sometimes like I had on Harold Schechter and Eric Lawson, they wrote older books, you know, about oh, yeah. serial kills, isn't that you wrote about something that we can go watch on YouTube now, reading it and speaking to survivors of it. Um, is it tough for you to emotionally deal with all that stuff? Because it's heavy. You you talk to the people on the front line. I read it in the words. Is it difficult for you at the end? Sure. You can't shut it off at night when you turn out the light. One of these books will take at least three years. Two years for the basic research, you start to write, that's when you see more holes that you got to go back to. I talked to the FBI agent who found the kids' bodies when they basically melted inside Mount Carmel after the fire. I read the autopsies. I saw the photographs. I talked to people who had children die. I talked to agents who saw their friends die. Yeah, you carry that. You do. But that's the only way you can really write a book that readers are going to feel. Lots of guys who write nonfiction say, well, I write my books to make readers think. Well, the readers aren't going to think until they feel, until they can empathize with the people they're reading about, even if you don't agree with what they're doing or why. So I have nightmares. Wow. Uh, particularly the Manson book, the Jim Jones People's Temple book, and this book. Uh, periodically, I have nightmares, usually the same kind of nightmare. It'll involve whatever violence is in the book. I don't enjoy that. It's part of the price you pay. And when I finish a book, it usually takes months for me to get it out of my head. Right now, because I'm promoting this book, I think about it, that means you get the dreams. And my dream in this case, I'm in Mount Carmel, the morning of the ATF raid. I'm trying to convince the different Branch Davidians I talked to, never Koresh himself because he was dead. He's not somebody that my memory can jog when I'm asleep. I can see their faces. And I'm saying, these guys aren't coming to kill you. Put down your guns. This doesn't have to happen. And they're getting their guns. And I try to go out the front door, and there are the cattle trailers 
And the guys coming off it are guys I know and I have talked to. And I'm trying to say, they want this, don't do it, don't get out. And then the shooting starts. And that's when I wake up. And I have that dream over and over. That's heavy. Well, you know, nothing... Again, people think your broadcasts are easy. You just kind of press a magic button, there you are. <laughs> you know everything you have to do to put it together. To write a book like this, you can't be clinical. If you want, you interview people, you feel what they're feeling. It, it, it is hard, but if you think the story is important, that's part of what it takes to do it. You, you kind of touched on something that I, I made a little mental note to ask you about because it this is one of the parts of the book that I kind of like giggled at and not your book didn't have many giggle it's not a funny book no that's true not too many jokes not too many uh Florence Hutt, I forgot her name she was uh, Florence Houtif yes yes how did she go from basically saying the world's gonna be over I'm a cult leader this and that then she just picked up went to California and got a job at ATM like like what that part blew my mind like she just like uh, okay I'm done with the whole cult thing I'm gonna go uh, work 5 p.m. Yeah. Like, yeah. how did she do that mentally? That's I was mentally worried about her. Like, how did she just put it all away and go work for IBM? I wish I knew. Uh, she died in 2008, which is unfortunate because I would have liked to ask her. But that's that's one of the big things. Everybody's different. We always assume if people are in a cult, they're all one way. If mm -hmm. people are in ATF or the FBI, they're all one way. They're not. And Florence is one of the odder people in the book. She's 17. She marries the leader of the group at that time. He dies a heart failure, and she announces the last thing he did was pass on a message from God. The world's going to end on such and such a day. It doesn't. I will give her credit for this. I mean, she didn't say, oh, well, God came to me in a message and said, now it's going to be three weeks. She said, hey, I was wrong. <laughs> she leaves. She moves back to California, gets an accounting job with a tech firm, and ma marries one of the engineers and is never heard from again. So crazy. In, in the book, you have the picture of Timothy McVeigh there. Did you know about the picture? Um, who gave you the picture? Because that part, I'm like, you mentioned McVeigh, and then I'm, I look at the pictures, I'm like, Timothy McVeigh was there? Like, it seemed yeah. like it was fake. Who gave you that picture or was it out there? No, it's a, it was a surprise to me. Um, I'm interviewing Ferris Rookstool, the FBI agent. Okay. And he starts talking about how he drove out there one day and there's Timothy McVeigh. And I'm going, what? Really? And he said, oh, yeah. He said, there's a picture of him in the FBI files. And I said, what? He said, here's the thing. SMU Student Magazine, every media outlet in the world is in Waco, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of college newspapers, SMU Student Newspaper, kids out there, student at SMU, wants to talk to somebody young about it. And there's this young guy sitting in the hood of a truck, Timothy McVeigh. So they interview McVeigh and take his picture. Two years later, FBI is investigating what McVeigh did at Oklahoma City they run across this stuff. And so in the FBI files is a picture of Timothy McVeigh. And, you know, you use Freedom of Information Act, you get hold of it. And because it's a government photo, you know, I've got the rights to use it. So there it is. But I didn't know that. FBI agent told me. Well, th That's that what I mean about surprises. Was there a time, now you knew the book was going to sell well. You covered the 51 days perfectly. I was itching to turn the page. I hated when the book ends. Uh, Timothy McVeigh, while you're doing this, did you know, okay, I got it. Was there a moment like, okay, I know this book's going to be it? Was it certain interviews or something? Or you just, you, did you know? Every book has a moment. When I start thinking, I understand it. I didn't understand it before. I understand it now. And for me... That moment, weirdly, was when I was interviewing a surviving Branch Davidian named Kathy Schroeder. She was the one who made her son eat the grasshopper. And when I talked to other former Branch Davidians, it was not in their homes. It was sort of like a neutral spot. But Kathy, who lives in Florida, said, come on over to the house. 
And she's got her, she's keeping her two-year-old granddaughter, you know, kids on her lap, normal neighborhood, Halloween decorations up out, out in the yard. And you realize we're not talking about lunatics here. We're not talking about stupid people. We're not talking even necessarily about strange people. And when I started to get that, that's when I thought, I think I can write objectively about the Branch Davidians. And if I can do that, then the book can be balanced. So that was my moment with Kathy Schroeder. You spoke to a lot of Branch Davidians, and this is my personal question to you. I think it was Livingston Fagan who said that he found your questions problematic. Without, oh, yeah. get, without getting into it, what was problematic? Because, listen, obviously you asked the questions. You interviewed him. What was it that he didn't like? Because it seemed that you were fair because neither side was probably happy. You know, ATF, like you said, the Branch Davidians. What do you find? What didn't he like about your questioning? I wasn't blindly accepting everything he was telling me about David Koresh. Um, we got to the subject, and you have to come to this subject, about the sexual mm-hmm. assaults on underage girls. And Livingston's statement to me was that this is what God wanted David to do. If you challenge David's right to do this, you are challenging God. And I pushed on that a little. And things went downhill from there. Uh, I then decided I would go ahead and ask him about Cyrus T, the original Koresh. And let's just say he started screaming. And that was that. It... uh, It was uncomfortable for me. It was certainly uncomfortable for him. But it says something that 30 years later, after his wife, mother, and two daughters died at Mount Carmel, he still believes they are with David Koresh the Lamb, and they're coming back any day when the end of times begins. This is how he's gotten through the last 30 years. And here somebody is talking to him saying, you know, David Koresh plagiarized all that stuff. I don't think it likely he was going to say to me, thank you very much. You're right, Jeff. And he didn't. Yeah. You gave me 45 minutes of your time. You're ready to finish up with some quick hit questions. Whatever you want. We get you to New York. You and I are at a bar. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back? You want to impress everyone in the bar. Who's the coolest person? Um, Either Leslie Van Houten or Patricia Krenwinkel from the Manson family at Corona Women's Prison. Okay, those are great. Okay, that's a great answer. I'm gonna be honest, that's an amazing answer. You're a big sports guy. One sporting event in history you wished you could have watched live. 1962, seventh game of the World Series, and Willie McCovey's line drive gets past Bobby Richardson <laughs> instead of getting caught for the third out. I was 11 years old, and if the Giants had won that series, my life could have ended then. I would have felt fulfilled. Last show you binged watched. Don't know if I should say this, but I got a real kick out of this thing on Netflix called Wednesday. Okay. Because <laughs> I watched The Adams Family when I was a little kid and thought it was creepy and cool. And then there's this show that's 10 times better. And I got to watch every minute and I'm falling over laughing. I love it so much. That is awesome. How about last book you read? Well, right now I'm reading Rick Atkinson's trilogy about World War II. Whenever I finish a book of mine that I think is complicated and has so many moving parts, there's authors I admire who tackle stuff that's a lot tougher than any of my subjects. And I read their books and I think, you know, I'm not as good as I need to be yet. I need to push myself more. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Have you ever started a book or had the perfect idea for a book, and for one reason or another, you didn't continue with it? Only the first two books I tried to write when I was pretty young. Okay, what were they? That's when, um, let's see, one was a novel about an evil little girl who is going to destroy her high school because somebody pissed her off. And I thought it was spooky as hell. And I had no idea how to create that type of tension, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. And then I wanted to write a book. I love history. 
and I, I, I really love novels based on history that use the real history. Mm -hmm. So I thought it would be interesting to write a novel from the perspective of Mary Magdalene. Oh, okay. And of course, I didn't know anything about biblical history or actual <laughs> history of the times. And it was clunky and stupid. By the time I wrote my third one, I realized that you actually had to prepare before you started <laughs> writing. You mentioned you're a Giant fan. Barry Bonds, does he belong in the Hall of Fame? No. Oh, okay. Are you adamant about the whole steroid era, him, A-Rod, all of them? You know, it's it seems like I'm a hypocrite mm -hmm. and that I knew Gaylord Perry reasonably well. Oh, oh. And Gaylord doctored every second yeah. pitch he threw, and I don't mind Gaylord being in there mm -hmm. but Gaylord's doing that in full view of the umpires and if he gets cost he's tossed the chemical advantage those guys were giving themselves was not right we pay to watch athletes who push themselves to actual physical limits and that I think the the numbers from those years and Bonds, damn it, was one of the best players oh. any of us ever saw. He didn't need I know, I know. to do that. And if he hadn't, we'd be, you and I would right now be in agreeing. He's one of maybe the 10 best all time. All time. All time. Yeah. All time. Yes. And one last thing. Uh, you don't have to tell me if you don't. Do you already know what your next book is going to be about or not yet? Or do you have a few ideas you're putting out there? I'm kicking around a couple things. When I the last chapter in this book is called The Legacy of Rage, mm -hmm. looking at how Waco has filtered down and the people involved. I'm thinking it may be time for a book on these people who are making themselves rich on broadcasting conspiracy theories and throwing them out there where people who are just who want to believe are looking for it. And the whole country's paying for that. I'm thinking maybe we might want to take a look at uh, some of those folks and we'll just see how uh, much they actually believe the stuff they're throwing out there. You know, without going on a tangent about that, they do that with zero repercussions then. So they say something, they can get the, you know, weak minded, riled up, go do what they have to do. And they just sit back and collect a paycheck. So it's sometimes, you know, you look back like, wow, there's no repercussions for anything they say. They can just. Well, I think it would be interesting to write about that. I'm with you, Jeff. Listen to me. Not that you need me to do it. Plug your Facebook, your new book, and plug everything, because this was an absolute blast doing this with you. Listen, thank you so much for reading my books, for caring about them. That means a whole lot to me. This was Give the plug where I can follow you, though, Jeff, on Facebook, because I don't have the Facebook. People follow you, obviously. Well, Facebook's the only social media I'm on because I don't like social media that much. <laughs> but if you're if you are on Facebook and would like to be in touch with me, I am there, <laughs> and uh, will always reply to any reader who uh, who wants to communicate. Uh, the book Waco, David Koresh, The Branch Davidians, and The Legacy of Rage is out right now. It, it should be on sale everywhere. And if I come to your town on a book signing program. I'd like to meet you. You have to. So this was a blast. I can't thank you enough.